As we prepare now to hear God's word, let's lift up our hearts together and ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word together, we ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of you. Strengthen us with all power, according to Christ's glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. And hear our prayers, for we ask them in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. If you take up your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. It's the second book of the Bible. And you'll find that on page 91 of many of our pew Bibles. Exodus chapter 32. And this is the story of the sin of Israel with the golden calf. So we want to think about uh, part of this story together this evening. Uh, We're going to read Exodus 32, 1 through 14. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here tonight. We've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism in the evening and going through the Ten Commandments. So we're considering the first commandment against idolatry, and that's why we're considering that in connection with uh, Exodus chapter 32. So we'll read the first 14 verses And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before, before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. 
thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, You can see why we would think about this text in connection with idolatry. Uh, This is maybe the best text to go to to think about idolatry, the one that maybe springs first in our minds in the scriptures when we think about idolatry. It's a pretty straightforward tale of sin and rebellion. It's not really hard to understand what the point of this particular text is, uh, that this is not something you should do, uh, something that we should stay far from. It's pretty obvious. Commenting on this passage, John Calvin writes, In this story, we perceive the detestable impiety of the people, their worse than base ingratitude, and their monstrous insanity mixed with stupidity. Sort of tell us what you really think, Calvin. Um, you know, but that's a pretty good description of what we have here. This is impiety, ingratitude, stupidity, and wickedness. It's insane to do what they did here. And this is an important text written down to tell us something about idolatry. And we also know from the New Testament perspective why this text was written down for us. That it comes to us for our instruction. Uh, Paul is crystal clear about that in 1 Corinthians 10, about what is the purpose of these things. They were written down for our instruction. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.6, specifically referring to this event, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Then in verse 11, he says they were written down for our instruction. Uh, So we are meant to take instruction from this passage. It has something to say to us about idolatry and the nature of idolatry. It's meant to keep us from desiring evil as they did. Uh, To steer us away from these sins which they committed. And if we really want to understand the instruction here and understand how to avoid committing the evil that they committed, in a certain sense we have to deconstruct what we find here. Uh, Figure out what happened here that they turned this way so that we can avoid it. And really what we see here is that what idolatry amounts to is covenant treason of God's people against their covenant God. Um, And that's how we want to look at this passage together this evening. We want to think first about the anatomy of covenant treason. How does it come about that people would do something like this? And then we need to see the serious answer of covenant justice as God comes declaring that his wrath is against those who would do this sort of thing. And then finally, we need to take hope from the appeal to covenant mercy that we see Moses make on behalf of the people, uh, which God responds to by relenting from the disaster he had said he was going to do. And so that's how we want to think about this passage together. First, the anatomy of covenant treason, the answer of covenant justice, and the appeal to covenant mercy. And think about the passage in that light. Um, This is the anatomy of covenant trees, and this unfolds while Moses is on the mountain. Uh, Moses has been up on the mountain with the Lord. He's been receiving the tablets from the Lord, and as the scene has been focused on Moses and his mission in going up onto the mountain, it would be natural for us to think, now when Moses is up on the mountain with God, what's happening down with the people? And so at the end of of chapter 31, we leave off with Moses on the mountain, having been given the tablets of the law from God, and then the scene shifts down to Israel, and we find what they are doing. And Moses was on the mountain for a while, and we see that after he had been there for a while, 
the people come up with ideas of their own. That when Moses is delaying in coming down, certain people decide that they need to now chart their own course in the wilderness and in the world. They need to figure out where they go from here, and they're going to make some decisions. They're going to take the reins of leadership, and they start by barking out orders to Aaron. Right? Up. It's not a very nice way to address someone, right? To just come to them and say, up. Um, I have a nephew who will come to you and hold out a cup and say, juice. Um, and you have to say, no, that's not how this works. You have to ask nicely. Um, you know, so up, go ahead, make for us idols. Um, we need you to take over. And, and why is this happening? Um, where does this demand come from? Uh, well, they sort of give the demand and their explanation for it. Um, they make this demand, up, make us gods, right, that will go before us. And their explanation is because this man, Moses, who knows what's become of him? Um, it's a sort of, you know, arrogant way they speak to Aaron and a dismissive way they speak about Moses. Um, as for this Moses, that's kind of a dismissive way of speaking of him. As for, as for this Moses, we do not know what's become of him. Um, it's interesting they say he's the one who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. But now we don't know what's become of him, so it's up to us to now chart our own course, and we've decided that we need gods to go before us, and we need you to make them. Um, This is what they've decided will be best. This is what they've decided is really what they want. God is neatly cut out of their thinking, and they've decided to go their own way. And their, their actions and what they say really reveal the desires of their hearts. Why do they want gods to go before them? Why do they want this as opposed to what they've had with the Lord leading them? Um, It's because they want to go back to the kind of thing they had in Egypt. That's really what they're saying. We like the Egyptian way of doing things better. We like that system better. I like how one commentator put it. The Israelites have been taken out of Egypt, but Egypt hasn't been taken out of the Israelites. That's really what they're asking for. We want the kind of worship that existed in Egypt. And Egypt was famous for these kinds of bull cults. Um, Now, you could take bull in a different direction. That's not how I mean it. But cults that were surrounded around idols for bulls. Uh, the cult of Apis, the bull, was one of the more famous ones. And it's clear to see why they liked that kind of worship. Because it was kind of a moral free-for-all. That's what Egyptian worship amounted to. It was essentially a big, unrestrained party. You ate food until you were stuffed. You drank wine until you were drunk. And then you carried on like college students at spring break with all the moral, immoral and loose living associated with that. And they said, you know, that was a party. This is scary. This is a God we don't see. This is a God who is holy. We like that other stuff better. We want more of that again. And they're eager to bring that kind of worship back. And when Aaron acquiesced to their request, they can't wait to do it. Right? He starts by saying, all right, now go around and give up all the gold you have. Give me all the gold you have so we can do this. And what is their response? Sure, they're right there to do it. 
They dump it all on him. And as soon as he makes it, they hail this calf as their God. These are our gods who brought us out, up out of the land of Egypt. And they're happy to have a sunrise service for this kind of God. Right? They wake up early for it. They're ready for worship. They roll out when this starts. They're excited about it. Right? They rose up early, we're told, verse 6, the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It sounds kind of nice as it's described there. It's meant to describe absolute immoral living. That's what happens. That's what idolatry breeds. Their hearts are impatient to wait on God's servant. They're filled with a desire to do the things that God has commanded them not to do, and they're eager to run into every sort of wickedness with reckless abandon. And it teaches us something really important about idolatry. That it begins in the heart, the things that we want, the things that we desire, the things that we want to replace God with, um, that we want to bow down and serve. And if left unrestrained, right, if there's no one to stand in the way of these things, they will run out and corrupt everything. It corrupted the entire people um, running away with them. It corrupted even their most senior leader. Aaron was the next in charge with Moses gone. And he just goes along with this without a word of protest whatsoever. And left unrestrained, where will idolatry lead? It leads to destruction and it leads to death. That's That's why when we talk about idolatry, as we unfold the Ten Commandments in the Heidelberg Catechism, it puts it in very serious terms. It's interesting in that explanation in question 94 begins by saying that I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry. That that's how high the stakes are. That's how serious what we're talking about here. That's what Israel did. They got the entire commandment wrong here. What are we supposed to do? Avoid and shun all idolatry. Right? Rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, look to God for every good thing, and humbly and patiently love, fear, and honor Him with my whole heart. They get that all wrong. Um, pursuing what should be avoided and shunned. Looking away from God without humility and impatience and go against God's will in every way. That's what idolatry does. It replaces God with something else. It serves God when only God should be served. That's how this covenant treason unfolds. And just as when we were on the mountain with Moses, we would ask what's going on down below. The Holy Spirit knows that what the question on our heart will be, after this all goes on, what is God going to think of it? Um, After they they commit these great acts of immorality, this great act of covenant treason, what is God going to say? And the the scene really shifts back in verse 7 to Moses on the mountain. And this covenant treason is answered with covenant justice. What does God say about this people? Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I mean, reading this, it almost sounds like when 
You know, children are in trouble and you hear parents talking and they'll say, you'll never guess what your daughter did. Get ready to hear what your son did. It's always your responsibility when they've committed problems. And that's almost how God sounds like he's talking to Moses. You'll never guess what your people did. Um, But really what God is doing is kind of repeating their words back to Moses. Moses brought this people up and now where is he gone? And God says to Moses, you know your people who you brought up from Egypt? They've ruined themselves. That's what this word corruption could be literally rendered. They have ruined themselves. They've ruined themselves with what they've done. They've ruined the covenant before it could even be delivered to them. Right? Moses is holding the covenant tablets, and number one is don't do this. And they're doing it. They've ruined it before he can even deliver it to them. They've turned aside quickly, God says. It took them no time at all to forget God's command and turn away from him. They've engaged in idolatry and false worship. And God says, I have seen this people. This people that talked about this Moses. This Moses, we don't know what's become of him. Well, God says, well, I've seen this people. I've seen what they've done in ruining themselves. They are a stiff-necked people. This is the first time in Scripture God describes them as a stiff-necked people. It won't be the last. Right? A stiff-necked animal is one that, you know, like a mule that you're trying to turn to do something by pulling on the reins, and it won't turn its head. It's trying to hold its head so it can't be turned. It's stiff-necked. And God says, that's what the people are like. This people has corrupted itself, is disobedient, idolatrous, and blasphemous. In no real sense can they meaningfully be called his people anymore. And that's what idolatry is. It's putting something else where only God should be. Or putting something else alongside of God as if he can coexist. As if Aaron can somehow make up for the sin of this by calling the bull Lord, as if that doesn't make it worse. You can't do that. And so what is the answer of covenant justice? What does that demand for this kind of crime? Well, it's pretty serious, isn't it, in verse 10? Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. I am going to destroy them in my wrath. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth and start over with you. Um, Total destruction is the sentence for this crime. And it's not because God is overreacting. I think that's one of the hardest things for us when it comes to covenant justice from God, that we think he's overreacting, that the punishment somehow is too extreme that he's overreacting to to what's happening here. And that just shows that we don't really understand the serious nature of sin because God is a just God. And that when God purposes to do something like this, what he's saying is, that's what this sin deserves. That's what covenant treason deserves. It deserves total destruction. Um, And that's when we get things wrong. We don't really understand the seriousness of the crime. The Psalms wonderfully help us to understand the seriousness of what happened here. To understand the nature of this kind of sin. 
In Psalm 106, it, it chronicles this sin. And then the psalmist summarizes it for us, tells us what we are to make of it. Why did they do this? In Psalm 106, 21 and 22, we read, They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. They forgot him. It's one of the reasons we sang Psalm 77. It's a pretty tune. Uh, but that psalm wrestles with the psalmist feeling you know, alone and isolated and feeling like if I cry out to God, will he really help me? And feeling just at a loss to know comfort from the Lord and just feeling in the depths of despair. And how does he draw himself out of that when he's tempted to think, has God forgotten to be kind? He says, no, I'll think back to what God has done. And remember that God doesn't forget his people. And I can think back to the wonderful ways God acted for the people and remember how God does not forget us. That God always remembers us. And the psalmist bowies his heart by thinking back to what God did in Egypt, bringing them out of slavery, and what God did at the Red Sea, bringing them through safely, how he led them out by Moses and Aaron. The psalmist can draw comfort from that, can draw that remembrance that we have a God who never forgets us. And here are the people who experienced it themselves. Right? These people at the mountain are not the people who heard about these things like the psalmist heard about them. They are the people who did it. These are the slaves freed from Egypt. These are the people who walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. These were the people who ate the manna from heaven, who drank the water from the rock. And what was the seriousness of their crime? They forgot that God. They forgot that God who never forgot them. Right? That's what's so sad about this. Because when they called to him in their slavery, he heard them. He remembered them. He came for them. And when they were encamped by the Red Sea and there, there was Pharaoh's army and they were caught back to the sea with nowhere to go, God said, you won't have to lift a finger. I will do it all. I will save you. You will just watch as I destroy your enemies. And when they cried out, we're going to die of hunger in the wilderness, he sent manna from heaven. When they cried out, we're going to die of thirst, he brought water forth from the rock. That God never forgot them. That God was always true to his covenant promises. And how did they return his kindness to them? His steadfast love. They forgot him. They forgot the one who never forgot them. And as Psalm 106 said, they made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They exchanged the glory of God for a bull. Not even a real bull, a bull they made. They exchanged the glory of God for man's garbage. That's what idolatry does. It trades God's glory for man's garbage. It trades the real God for the gods we make. And like we prayed from Isaiah 44, that's as stupid as the man who cuts a piece of wood in half, burns half of it in the fire to keep himself warm, and makes the other half his God and bows down to it. 
It's, it's foolishness. It can't help. And this is the perpetual sin of man, always exchanging the glory of God for man's garbage. And what does that deserve? It deserves to be cut off in wrath from the face of the earth. And we can be thankful that in, in God's anger, Moses doesn't stand aside, but rather appeals to the covenant mercy of God. That knowing that that's what this people deserves, Moses still stands up for the people and appeals to the covenant mercies of God. Having thought about this and thinking about the nature of their sin and the, the, the destruction it deserves, we might put ourselves in Moses' shoes and say, would we do that in his place? When God has said, I am hot with anger against his people, stand aside because I'm about to wipe them off the face of the earth. What does Moses do? He doesn't stand aside. It's rather remarkable that God says, stand aside, but Moses implored the Lord his God. Moses pled with the Lord. The psalm remembers that too. And said, therefore God said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. God was going to wipe them off the face of the earth, except for what? Except for Moses standing in the breach. It's the image of a, a fortified city when a wall has been breached and the enemy is about to pour in through the wall. They've cut a hole in the wall and they're going to come through your defenses. And if the wall's been cut and there's a breach in the wall, how do you defend that? Someone has to stand in the breach. Someone has to be the wall. And that's what the psalmist is, that's what the psalmist is saying Moses was. When they had made this break between themselves and their God, Moses stood in the breach. And he pled for God with God. He doesn't plead for the people. He pleads for God. And in doing so, he seems to fight against every word that God has spoken. Stand aside, he doesn't stand aside. I'm going to destroy them, and, and Moses says, don't destroy them. Um, again, Calvin is so helpful. He said, every word of this seems to fight against what God is saying. And Moses implores him with boldness not to do what he's purposed to do. There's nothing to say in defense of the people. They've broken the covenant. There's nothing to say on their behalf. So how does Moses intercede he doesn't intercede because of the people, because there's something in the people. He intercedes only on what's in God. Notice that that's how he argues. He intercedes for God's sake and makes his argument for that reason. He says to God, as Habakkuk will later say, in wrath, remember mercy. Remember yourself in this. Remember your salvation. That's the first thing Moses pleads for in verse 11. Remember your salvation. They're not the people I brought up out of Egypt. They're the people you brought up out of Egypt. Uh, you brought them up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. 
I didn't save them. You saved them. Remember your salvation, the great salvation that you've worked for this people. And save them for the glory of your name. What is Moses concerned if God does this? What is his concern? Not for the people. I mean, Moses will come down from the mountain hot when he sees what's going on. He'll be angry too. Again, he's not pleading that somehow that they should be excused for what they've done. He says, think about the glory of your name. Think about what the Egyptians will say if you do this. What will they say if you wipe them from the face of the earth? They'll say, with evil intent did God bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. He says, they'll mock your name if you do this. Don't allow your name to be mocked. We know what your purpose has been. Do this for the sake of your salvation. Do this for the sake of the glory of your name. Do this for the sake of your promise. Moses says to God, you never promised to make me a nation. That wasn't your promise. Your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was to make them a nation. To make them a great nation, not to make me a great nation. Remember your promises. The covenant that overstands the covenant at Sinai. And remember that you swore by yourself you would do it. Moses not only says you promised to them, but he says in verse 13, you swore by yourself that you would do it. It's a wonderful intercession for the sake of God's name, for the sake of his salvation, his glory, his promise. And what are we told in verse 14? Um, It's a remarkable verse. When we read, and the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. It worked. Moses stood in the breach and successfully turned away the wrath of God. Turned away the wrath of God against his people. Now we know that God's purposes never change, that none of his promises can fail But he speaks about himself in a way that we can understand. His character never changes. His his purposes never change. But here he changes a course of events that he had previously threatened because of Moses' intercession. This was written down for our instruction. What is the instruction that we are meant to take from this? Um, There are several points that we could make. Maybe you're afraid I'll make them all at this late hour. Um, But there are a few points that we need to make and remember for our own instruction in this. And the first is that covenant breakers deserve to die for their sins. It's the seriousness of sin, particularly the seriousness of the sin of idolatry, to forget God and put something else in His place. To understand the seriousness of it. The catechism tries to impress on us the seriousness of it. That we avoid it lest we endanger our own salvation. This passage certainly impresses upon us the seriousness of this sin. Covenant breakers deserve to die for their sins. And they need a mediator to intervene for them. When we sin, 
There's nothing we can say in our defense. When we sin, when we show ourselves to be covenant breakers, there's nothing we can say on our own behalf. We can't say to God, well, it really wasn't that serious, or it really wasn't that big a deal, or you're overreacting. The only hope we have is if someone will stand in the breach for us who can plead something other than our actions. And that's what this passage is teaching us. We need a mediator who will stand in the breach. If God's wrath is to be turned away, someone has to do that. Someone has to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And the good news that the Bible teaches us is that we have that mediator. We have someone who can stand in the breach for us. Someone who is greater than Moses. Right? Moses couldn't absolutely turn away the wrath of God for this people. This people would die in the wilderness for their sins. Uh, Moses would not see the promised land on account of his sin. Right? There, he was not a perfect mediator. He could not completely or permanently turn away the wrath of God. But when God gives us Christ as a mediator, he is able to do that. He is able to stand in the breach between us and the wrath and the justice of a holy God and turn it away from us. And what does he plead? Not us. There's nothing in us to argue before the Father. What does he plead before the Father? He pleads himself. I have not corrupted myself. Jesus can say, I have not ruined myself. I have not turned aside. I have not forgotten you. And remember their sin against me. That's what Jesus can say. In the power of his divinity, he can stand there in his humanity and say, do not remember their sins against them. And if there's sin to be punished, punish it in me. That's how he stands in the gap for us. That's how he turns away the wrath of God. The fancy word we use for that is propitiation. And Jesus does that by pleading himself. The perfection of his righteousness and his sacrifice on the cross. God has given us a mediator to stand in the breach for us. And the good news is he will always be there standing in the breach for us. One of the things that we draw great comfort from in the Word is the truth that we have a mediator who ever lives to intercede for us. That He died for our sins, that He was raised for our justification, that He's ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father, there to ever intercede for us, there to always stand in the breach for us. And when our sins rise up against us, to say to His Father at His right hand, Remember my sacrifice. Remember my death. Remember my life. Remember it not against them. It's been punished in me. And the Father, knowing that was the only way for His wrath to be turned away, sent Him to the world in the first place to save sinners. What a wonderful thing it is to know as the people of God that we have someone always standing in the breach for us, ever living.
to intercede for us. That perfect sacrifice that has truly taken away our sin. The fancy word for that is expiation. It's taken away our sin. He turns away the wrath. And so whenever our sin rises up before the Lord, there is our Savior interceding for us. Standing in the breach, turning away the wrath. And we know the cost he paid to do it. Later in Moses' life, when he tries to intercede for the people, he will say to God, blot me out of the book of life, that they may live. But Moses can't make that deal. He's not equipped to be blotted out for the sake of the people. That's what Jesus did. That's what the cross is. The wrath of God coming in hot anger on his son and consuming him, body and soul, from the face of the earth. That's what it cost to redeem us. That's the price he paid. And he has paid the price and he has taken away the sin and he has turned away the wrath and we need to keep all of that in mind so that we in gratitude for all he's done turn away from the things that displease him. And why would we try to put something next to him alongside of him who is our only hope, who stands in the breach. Why would we put anything else there to try to stand in the breach for us when we have such a savior, such a mediator? Now, we're not tempted to make golden bulls. Probably we're not. If you are tempted to, see me after. We'll talk about it. But that's not the idolatry we have problems with. But Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. We are cranking them out all the time. We can take bad things and make them idols. We can take good things and make them idols. We can take indifferent things and make them idols. We are experts at doing this. And it's only when we hold in our minds what it costs to save us, what it costs to take away the wrath of our sins, Jesus doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, that will be the greatest motivation for us to avoid and shun anything else that we try to put next to him. The gratitude we have for such a Savior who at such a cost was willing to stand in the breach for evil people like you and me. That he could save us from our sins, turn away the wrath of God, and give us what he deserved. Right? He takes what we deserve and gives us what he deserved. And he does that freely of his grace because he's a God who doesn't forget us. And knowing that, how could we not want to serve him? How could we not want to say, he gets the only place of devotion in my heart? This will help us more than anything else to avoid and shun idolatry when we remember the God who always remembers us who sent his son to save us and that son who ever lives to intercede for us and that spirit that applies that work to us so that we may live. When we remember that great salvation, it'll motivate great gratitude and give us, as the older church fathers used to say, an eye single for his glory and put God in the place that only he deserves to occupy in the heart's and in the affections of his people.
May gratitude for Christ standing in the breach motivate us always to avoid and shun idolatry and to trust in that one and only true God and to rightly love and honor and fear him all the days of our lives. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how we know our own danger, our own foolishness of putting things alongside of you or instead of you and serving them. We know the folly that we are so prone to, to exchange the creation for the creator, to lift up things and replace your glory with our own garbage. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember our Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he's made to stand in the breach in defense of his people, that in the gratitude for you sending a Savior and in gratitude for having such a Savior, whoever lives to intercede for us, that would motivate us to always put you center of our lives, uh, to allow nothing to be in your place or even to stand alongside of you, but that we'd only serve you, the one and only true God. And we would do that in the confidence of knowing you are the God who has never forgotten your people, that you always remember us and help us and hear us when we call. And if you've given us your son, how will you not with him give us all other things? So help us to remember this and in gratitude may we live lives devoted to you. And hear our prayers. We ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.